Attention all gamers. Are you constantly obsessed about video games? Do you feel more comfortable in your mom's basement than a five-star hotel? Do you spend more time talking to orcs than real people? Then you need to listen to the 3-Bit Gamer Show. Subscribe to our show on iTunes or Google Play Music. Or go to 3BitGamerShow.com. Oh, have we got conversation for you on this week's edition of the Let's Go Eat Show, conversation of a heady type. Uh, we're talking with a playwright. Her name is Karirad Svich, and she's uh, in town in Salt Lake City for the uh, opening of a play she's written called Red Bike. It's being put on by the Pygmalion Theater Company, and uh, this woman is an accomplished playwright. She makes her living writing plays. She's been doing it for years, and you know, I like talking to her. I think it's a fascinating conversation because, well, we talked about plays and the arts and, and what it's like to be in theater, and you know I love that kind of stuff. Uh, so I hope you also enjoy the uh, conversation. Um, I had to produce the show uh, by myself. Yeah, hi, me, Bill. Produced it by myself because uh, Dylan, uh, my son, who produces the show, usually is well, he's out, of, he's out of town. And so I had to do it myself, and, and it was hard. I, I didn't like doing it, so Dylan, I appreciate what you do, and you really should come back here soon so we can produce more Let's Go Eat shows and other podcasts, all right? All right, that's it. Uh, enjoy. I hope you enjoy this conversation about Red Bike, currently uh, being produced by the Pygmalion Theater Company uh, here in town. You can get tickets for it at 355 Arts. It's playing at the Rose Wagner Theater, and this is the playwright. Her name is Karirad Svich on the Let's Go Eat show. Ah, uh, yeah. The, the Let's Go Eat show, uh, it's a kind of a little different take on the Let's Go Eat show. That, By the way, uh, our guest, uh, that's what this show is called, if you didn't know. It's called The Let's Go Eat Show, <laughs> because often we we eat food while we're doing it. Oh, in this case, we are not. <laughs> my, Although we both had a mint, so I guess that we counts. We did have a mint. <laughs> uh, my guest is Karidad Svich. Did I get that right? You did. Uh, and Karidad is a playwright. And quite an accomplished playwright, uh, I would say, as I look over your bio, as I have been doing uh, yesterday and today. Uh, and, you know, you, I know, I see you shrug kind of like um, uh, modestly, but you know that you're a very accomplished playwright. Yes, I, I guess I know that. <laughs> yes. I sometimes feel um, that... Well, the thing about being a writer is you feel like you've never quite found that you're always looking for the next thing you want to work on. So, mm -hmm. so you feel like, oh, I did that other thing, but now let me focus on something else. So you always feel like you're starting new. Uh, uh, that's interesting. We'll talk. We'll get into that a little bit. I'm, I'm going to tell people why you're in town. Caridad uh, uh, has uh, written a play called The Red Bike, or is it just Red Bike? Just Red Bike. Red Bike. And uh, Pygmalion Theater Company is doing it. And as of right now, I think it opens today. Tonight. Now, tonight. And when you hear this, it will have been open for a couple of days. But you'll still have a chance to see it. Uh, now, as a matter of fact, I think I have the run dates here. Yes, I do. Red Bike uh, opens today. Um, this is April 20th, 420, man, uh, while we're recording this. And it goes through May 5th. Uh, and if you want to buy tickets... And you will, after you hear us talk about it, uh, it's at the Rose Wagner. You can buy tickets uh, by going to Art Ticks, just 355-ARTS. That's 801-355-ARTS or artsaltlake.org. Now, and we'll repeat that coming up. Now, Karidad, uh, being an accomplished playwright, let's talk about Red Bike, and then I want to talk about some of your other work. Um, but, oh, and, you know, first what I'd like to do is just ask you about your background a little bit. Sure. Uh, tell, tell, tell people uh, where you were born and wh what you, how you kind of got into all of this. Sure. Uh, I was born in Philadelphia, grew up mostly in New Jersey, Florida, North Carolina, with a brief stint in Salt Lake City when I was in the sixth grade. And you remember it at all? Salt Lake City? They, I just remember the mountains. <laughs> the mountains. And it was the first time I was out west. Mm -hmm. And so I think the impression of driving, first of all, we drove, we drove across country to get here. Mm -hmm. And that trip was kind of, the land just kept getting bigger and bigger, you know? And yeah, it's that, weird, isn't it? It's so yeah. flat for a long time. And Incredibly. Then, yeah, like Nebraska. Correct. You drove across Nebraska. Yes, we did. I drove across Nebraska once with my ex-wife, and uh, I was right on the border, the eastern border of Nebraska, early in the morning at a cafe, and I was, ended up talking to some guy, and he mm. said, "What? where are you going? I said, well, I'm heading to Utah, and he's, and I said, I'm going to drive across Nebraska today, and he said, oh, son, you ain't going to get across Nebraska today, and he was right. <laughs> 
didn't quite make it all. That state is huge and flat. It's huge and flat, and and it's sort of as huge and flat as even flatter than Texas. Uh, yeah. Uh, which was also felt like I think we were in Texas driving for four days. I don't know. It was like endless days in Texas. Um, but it was beautiful to sort of see this part of the country uh, at that time and kind of figure out. Oh, I think when you're growing up on the East Coast and it's the geography is very. You know, mostly mm-hmm. in cities. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's tenement houses and row houses Philadelphia, and cluster yeah. and mm-hmm. clustered, you know, sort mm-hmm. of environments um, to just suddenly see land. And I think it impacted me as a writer, um, even though I didn't know that then. I know that now mm-hmm. um, because I came back to the West to go to grad school at UC San Diego. And, uh, and I think it partly had to do with wanting to come back to kind of experience of landscape in a different way and have uh, you been back to salt lake since this trip right now this is back yesterday evening i landed (laughs) and was it did it did you kind of go wow i remember this vaguely i mean i just i just you know we were coming from the airport and i was like oh those mountains again you know it was just like Mm -hmm. and also because they have snow on them a little bit still and and i and i just had forgotten the sort of the the ma- I know it's sort of a corny word sometimes people use, but the true majesty of it and also uh, a kind of... Um you it's feel, imposing. You feel, you feel yeah. a little small. It's imposing. <laughs> it, it, yes. Yeah. I mean, I grew up here, but every once in a while when I stop to think about it and mm. I stop and I look and I go, geez, you know, this mm-hmm. is this. I am small in 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 mm-hmm. this world, really. When I'm here, absolutely. Uh, so uh, you got you you had a, a kind of a vagabond life, but you you mm-hmm. you decided at some point to be a writer. Yes, and I was, uh, why a play writer? Yes, uh, I was writing a lot of short stories when I was a kid and poetry, and uh, I was also studying music, uh, piano, guitar, and voice. Uh, so I had an interest in performance from that angle. Uh, was writing little songs and stuff, and then my short stories had a lot of dialogue in them. And so uh, an English teacher in junior high said to me, "Have you tried plays?" Um, and I, mean, I think my prior experience with plays was either seeing musicals, you know, touring shows that were mm-hmm. coming through town, or uh, reading Shakespeare. Uh, neither of which seemed <laughs> like viable to me. Yeah. I was like, "Well, I don't know how to do either of those things." Um, but I was curious, and I wanted to impress my teacher um, because I did want to get an A in the class, and so. So, uh, and so I said, plays, huh? Hmm. And so I just read, you know, I just started reading because I, uh, I felt like, well, I got to read what these things are. And, and I went to my local library in Miami, Florida, and um, decided I would read as close to everything I could on the, in the stacks in the drama section, which is a pretty big drama section. So yeah. I read 10 plays a week. Uh, 10 plays a week? Yeah, I sort of gave myself that task. What, did, you, did you start in any kind of order, like I did not. modern or, uh, no, or, or I was, alphabetical I, or... Willy nilly, I wanted to uh, go across centuries, uh, so I was reading Tennessee Williams next to Sam Shepard, next to, huh. which was a good combo actually. That's, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and then also looking at Euripides and Lillian Hellman and Adrian Kennedy and um, out, of, out of all uh, out of all uh, out of all of that, what do, do some of these remain your favorites? And do you, what do you remember as being kind of your favorites? What you really liked. What I really liked, well, there was this very peculiar, it is indeed very peculiar play by Tennessee Williams called, it has different titles. Uh, uh, the pu- one published title for it is Outcry. Another published title for it is the two-character play. And, it, and it's fa- quite famously a play that didn't do well in either mm-hmm. of its iterations. Uh, and it's about a brother and sister. And, and um, it's very, very abstract, uh, full of role play in a kind of Genet kind of manner. Um, Jean Genet. Right, well, I... You know, you, when you say that, I understand what you're talking about because yes. I have a background and uh, and I was in Tennessee, a Tennessee Williams play similar to what you're talking about called "Talk to Me Like the Rain and Let Me Listen." Mm-hmm. Very poetic, very yeah. uh, dreamy quality mm-hmm. to it, and I love doing it. Uh, yeah. But uh, Jean Genet is uh, uh, a French playwright, theater of cruelty, kind of, and all that. So anyway, you, that you really liked that. I really liked it because I think partly because it's very strange play and I think it was unlike anything I'd read from Tennessee before that you know Mm, so it was kind of like oh he also did this Um, and then there was also a um, in the published one of the published editions there was a photo of the um, original set I guess from the first production and I Mm. the idea of the physicality of theater I think that that's when it's sort of like the lightning thing rod in my head or whatever you want to call it but that sort of moment of like oh how it looks in space and and that that the writer is sort of the architect of that in a way even though 
you you know, in Tennessee's case, he was very descriptive in his stage directions. But even if you're not doing any, uh, that that's still part of your job. And so I just became really tantalized by that. So I think that was the first sort of little epiphany moment. And then reading David Mamet's American Buffalo. Um, wow. Yeah. Because um, the cursing is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. You, yeah. He's he's got away with the with the swear words. Yeah. He really does. And the rhythm of it was intoxicating. And uh, and I and I think it was the first time I was sort of reading something that was in the true American vernacular that had um, a kind of self-awareness around its poetry um, and a kind of angularity about it. And and I was like, oh, you could do this too. And so I just became really, those two kind of became little, I mean, they're a very different place (laughs) from each other, but they kind of became sort of little places to kind of sit on as a writer. And then... uh, And then I think reading For Colored Girls for the first time, uh, also a a play that looked unlike any other play I'd read before. Oh, yeah. What's the whole title of that? For Colored Girls Who... Considered Suicide When when the Rainbow is Enough. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And, you know, it is a choreo poem. It's, you know, and I was like, oh, this is also a play. You know, and so I think those three became templates. Uh, And then I was like, I'm writing something. This is so cool. And... um, yeah, and then I kind of just got the bug, and and the first play I wrote was uh, dreadful, and uh, you know I was like fourteen, you know mm-hmm. I didn't know anything, and um, but I was in, I was intrigued enough that I kind of I took acting class, you know, and then I started becoming interested in acting and this notion of embodying text, which as an actor you learn, and and that idea of meeting having that encounter with the material. Uh, teaches you something about mm-hmm. structure and form, and and so then through that I started writing plays for me and my friends to do very quietly. You know, you're making me want to be a playwright. <laughs> the way we ta- way you talk about yeah. this, you're very. I, I th- you describe this so very well. Uh, and so, what was your first? What would you consider the first play that? I mean, you you did things for you and your friends to do. Yep. You probably you did things in college. I'm sure that students did. But what what would you consider your first? I guess your first, the first play you had mounted that you went, geez, this is a professional, I am now a professional playwright. Well, I had three experiences around that. So one of them was actually when I was an undergrad. Uh, in my second year of undergrad, I won a national contest, uh, like for real writing, whatever. I don't know. It wasn't a student contest. It was, mm-hmm. you know, anybody could write a, a send a play in uh, where 50% of the roles were for women, had to be for women. And mm. I wrote a play called Waterfall. It was my first full length. And I called actually- Waterfall? Waterfall. Mm-hmm. And I won the contest. And they flew me out to Baltimore and they yeah. put me up and they did my show. And I suddenly was like, oh, this is- enchanting and also I don't have to be on stage to, to for the work to be done you know yeah. and it suddenly became quite clear a the competitive nature of it like oh I actually won this thing out of like hundreds of people that sent their plays in too and I was like really excited by that idea and uh, oh like things I was keeping it as a quiet hobby of mine and then I realized it wasn't a hobby um, that was the first time you said to yourself that was I'm going to devote myself yeah, to this like, and make this my occupation non-stop from then on you know, that's it's a great it's nonstop. great to have that moment. Yep. Uh, you've won a lot of awards. Yep. I've looked through this. Uh, this is on your website, I think. And uh, uh, we're talking to, by the way, uh, Karidad Svich. Uh, and if you're looking for her online, it's C A R I D A D S V I C H, and just Google that, and you will find lots of stuff about about Karidad. Yeah. Uh, you've won an Obie. I have. That's pretty. That's that is pretty cool. That's the Off Broadway mm-hmm. Awards. It's like the there's the Tony Awards mm-hmm. for Broadway, and then the Off Broadway plays mm-hmm. the more. I mean, I guess you say more experimental plays usually. Uh, yeah. think, some of them often go to Broadway. Correct. But you won an Obie for Lifetime Achievement. I did. Why Why did they give you for life? Because you've got a lot of life left. I but, do. I don't know. They called me up and they said, you won this thing. So I was like, I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not going to. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, I still don't know. I'm very grateful to the panel. Every year they have a panel for the Obie Awards. Um, and I... And I think the the weird thing about winning it um, was that I kind of thought it was a prank at first. So I they uh-huh. sent me several messages, and uh, they're pub- the publicist for the Obies, and 
And I kept ignoring them, mm-hmm. and I thought they were trying to sell me something. I just didn't quite really understand what was going on. And uh, to the point where a theater company that I was working with called me up and said, you have to answer those messages. Like, they, get serious. They were smarter than you They about were. It. And then I, I kind of was like, well, why? And I still was a little bit miffed. And mm-hmm. um, But, I, you know, I the theater company called me, and so I was like, okay. Uh, and I, I called back, and then they told me, and I was like, and I just kind of sat for a moment, and I was like, well, this is crazy. Well, okay. I'll t- thank you. And it is a big deal. <laughs> it is a big deal. It is a big deal to win a Nobi of any kind. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you um, so you're a professional playwright now. You've you've established that. You've written uh, dozens of plays. Uh, More than uh, dozens. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> I, I'm looking through this, and it's an amazing amount of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of them have been produced in one way or the other. Most of them. Uh, would most you say? of them. I wouldn't most say all of them. them no. So how do we, um, and uh, by the way, Caridad is in town because uh, she has written a play called Red Bike. Is this the premiere performance of Red Bike? It is the first stop in the National New Plate Network Rolling World premiere. Okay. Uh, And um, is it, well, how, how do you describe your work in general? I've, I've seen what other people have said. What do you say about it? It depends on the play, actually. I try to change up what I'm doing every time I'm writing. So I have plays of mine that are... I write a lot of uh, plays with songs uh, that usually reconfigure the classics in some way. So I have a lot of Shakespeare riffs, and I have a lot of plays that kind of interrogate uh, the ancient Greeks' tragedies. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I also write what I call acoustic plays. They're sort of usually folk-based, musically... Um, deal a lot with uh, poverty. So you, so you need people who can play the guitar and sing and usually that sort yes, of stuff. Yes, I'm I'm very keen on having my actors be musicians as well. Um, and then I have you know, and then I have plays that are. I do a lot of adaptations of novels, uh, and then I also do translations. So I sort of yeah, I see you do, do a lot of uh, Lorca. The Lorca, yeah, I've translated almost all of Lorca's plays, so so that's a big part of my life. And uh, and I've also adapted Isabel Allende, Mario Vargas Llosa, and Marquez uh, to the stage. Um, Seems and, to me you yeah. have a command of that language. Uh, your father? My father's from Argentina, my uh, mom's from Cuba. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you, have, you, you uh, grew up in a bi- being bilingual? Bilingual completely, and then I took Spanish in school right, and, yeah. and through college, so yes, yeah. kept it up. Yeah, I'm mean, just to, to the nature of your plays. I I just went through the titles, and uh, I was wondering about some of them. Yeah. Oh, I remember the you know the one that caught my one caught my eye. Buster Keaton takes a walk, and I just underlined it. But then I re I just now looked, and I realized I I I, I underlined it because I thought, well, I know that title. Mm-hmm. It, it's actually a translation of Garcia Lorca. It's a miniature play of Lorca's that is yeah. quite beautiful. And I think it was in, originally intended to be a film, a surreal film. That's right. And I think they even actually filmed some of some it. Some of it, correct. Yeah, with Buster Keaton. Indeed. Yeah, Buster Keaton takes... I, I think now, God, I think I've even seen some of that fo- oh, yeah. footage. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so, but uh, a play... You have some great titles. S- Slow, fast walking on the red eye. Yes. What is that? So that plays a... I went through a period where I was writing a lot of... um, You know, this is like pre or the sort of early dawn of, I guess, the digital age. But I was really intrigued, and I still am, of course, with the language of texting and and Mm. virtuality and cyberspace and alternate selves that we create in cyberspace. And so I wrote a series of plays that sort of deal with that theme and also deal with uh, travel and... This notion that we take now for granted, which is that you can work out of, that you don't have to be at a place to make a living, that you can actually work from your home and so Mm -hmm. be everywhere. Um, And so there, and there tend to be, I call them romances. They're sort of romances about cyberspace, dark romances about cyberspace. And I wrote a series of plays around that. And they all, I all, I want them all to sound like uh, titles that could be... um, like for a CD, <laughs> so because I thought that would be a great way in for an audience to know they're not going to see quote a regular play. Um, I think that you, yeah, you've just by the title, you certainly mm-hmm. have accomplished that. Mm-hmm. Slow, fast walking on the red eye. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, these are are most of these po- plays that you write are they in fact uh, almost always in poetic language? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm interested in the intersection of prose and poetry, uh, hybrid forms, spoken word. Uh, characters breaking out into song, um, and just, you know, that the theater, in the theater you can do anything, you know, and so I feel like the beauty of that 
when and when and if it can serve the story uh, can be very exciting and it also creates a different relationship to the audience that you can't get in other forms i think and there's something about it being live um, when the form is shifting and it's and it's kind of transforming itself in front of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk, talk a little bit more about that. You've mentioned that a couple of times mm-hmm. in terms of um, uh, being an, a playwright, being an architect of the sp- of the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm that's fascinating to me, and I, it makes me. That's when I said, "Oh, that makes me think about wanting to write a play." Mm-hmm. Talk about that a little bit more. Yes, I mean, you know, I'll use Red Bike as an example. I mean, in that, in that, in Red Bike, you know, I wanted to. It started out as a solo piece, uh, and it's still in the front of the play. It can be either for one or three actors, one, two, or three actors, <laughs> I uh, like depending, that. depending on who's doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the idea behind it was, to, I wanted to sort of have the experience of a bike ride on stage, which sounds like an impossible idea. It does sound impossible. <laughs> but I thought, how cool would that be? So I started to think about how you craft that in terms of language and also what that does in terms of the visceral relationship of, that the audience has to the material. Uh, how do we feel, for example, how do we feel the wind moving through your body uh, when you're on a bike? Uh, how do you see landscape changing when you're on a bike? Uh, and I really, in, in the case of this play, uh, I wanted to structure a ride that felt in one so the the idea being although it's kind of a, a i have a trick up my sleeve with the play but uh yeah, don't give it away i won't give it away but uh it's it, it ostensibly it's one bike ride on an afternoon a small town usa uh a kid kind of their life changes forever on this bike ride uh, they see the world differently and i really wanted to write about uh economic inequality and telling it from the voice of the of one of you know one of our most vulnerable citizens, which is a, ch- a child, a kid, yeah, a kid, yeah. and so and so that that led me to construct the play as a as almost a real time bike ride, but then things happen in between. <laughs> mm. uh, it's a, it's funny, uh, you know, I just. Uh I just got a. I've had some back surgery and stuff, and and uh, so I, I've, I've been a big bike rider over the years. Mm-hmm. And it's made it kind of hard for me to ride my bike, mm-hmm. but I got an electric bike mm-hmm. this spring, and I've been riding it around when the weather. And I just yesterday I went on a like a you know only about a five or six mile ride, but around and I saw another guy on an electric bike, and we stopped to talk, and he said, uh, "They're great, aren't they?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "It makes you feel like you're a kid again, doesn't it?" Mm-hmm. You know that feeling of that you can just go anywhere in the world on your bike. Mm-hmm. That's that. It, it, you, what you've been saying kind of evokes that thought to me. A kid mm-hmm. on a bike, and you do have the feeling that you can just. When I was a kid, I could just go anywhere I wanted, mm-hmm. and I was free. I could get away from my parents. I could get away from everything and go somewhere on my bike. Mm-hmm. I loved that feeling. Yeah, and it's a feeling that, if you're thinking about the current political climate, I mean. How do you, I kept thinking about when I was writing this about what is the legacy we're leaving our children? What are they learning as they're growing up right now? Uh, what lessons are they learning and how are they carrying the future forward for us? And um, and I also kept thinking about the image that the idea of mobility, the idea of free, that kind of freedom uh, being a very powerful one, uh, I can go anywhere. I can transcend yeah. things that feel limiting, for example, in my life. Uh, and so, and, and I thought that, so the, the the notion of going back to an image of childhood, but also the notion of the power of potentiality and possibility that it is alive, um, that you can at least wake up uh, in you if you if you're a child, and and that nothing can stop you uh, from mm-hmm. dreaming. Uh, I thought that that uh, would be an interesting place of resistance politically for the play to live in. Uh, how do you? Um you must have some very specific ideas, especially with a play like this, about how it's staged, because you have to, you you have in your your mind how you create the illusion of a long bike ride around a town. But you have a director. You have to work with a. Do you ever direct your own stuff? You know, I'm leaning. I'm starting to because people keep asking me this, and I have, I'm a very hands-on playwright in the rehearsal room. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, and do, t- how do the directors like that? Uh, the, there are people that I've worked with for a long time, so our collaborations are quite close. Okay, good. And yeah. so it's like we whisper to each other, "Hey, how about this would happen on the stage? Well, how about if this happened? You know, so it becomes a kind of great shorthand. 
Um, but I, I do have very specific ideas. I also love being surprised. And, and so it's like, I wonder how somebody will take this on. And, and that part of me keeps me away from uh, the day-to-day of, of directing, which you do have to be there every day to do the thing. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, I mean, for instance, uh, when you're this production of Red Bike that Pygmalion is doing, uh, the, the play is pretty much mounted and you have had no, this is your first time here, you've had no really personal uh, input other than what you've written on the page. Correct. I mean, Fran and I, Fran directed another play of mine uh, called Spark uh, a few seasons back. And so she does know my work. Uh, and uh, she's actually one of the first people that read this play. I, I sent it to her. I'm not sure. You know, I was sort of <laughs> in a mood to send it to her. It was really mm-hmm. interesting. I just kind of like, hey, Fran, you know, I haven't heard from you in a while. I'm working on this play. Here's Red Bike. I'm excited about it. Maybe you'll find it interesting. And it was a really, really simple email. And then she respond. She was one of the first people that responded almost right away uh, last summer, mm-hmm. uh, and said, "I want to do this. I want to do this now. I want to put it in the season." And mm-hmm. I was like, "Whoa, hey, hold on!" Like, <laughs> you know, I'm just starting to send it around. And I, I had a hunch that other people might take it on, so I was keen on seeing if we could make a rolling happen. It was a complete uh, dream in my head, you know, mm-hmm. at the time. But I, I just had, you know, sometimes when you're writing, you just go, I think this may happen with this piece, you know. So so I was kind of scheming a lot uh, with other theaters and uh, trying to get some energy going with the piece. I had a workshop of it in London, and I was, you know, finding out a lot about how the play works with an audience. And so... Um, and then, you know, Fran was like, still kept sort of saying, I have to put it in the season. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. all right, we'll make it work. And then the whole NNPN Rolling World premiere thing happened kind of fairly quickly. Is that, is that something that already exists? It does. I, what does NPN stand oh, for? Oh, yeah, sorry. And explain this concept of the yeah, NPN. Yeah, yeah. I think I've kind of got it in my head, although I don't really know what NPN is. So. Yeah, yeah. It's the NNPN. It's the National New Play Network. Uh, this is So Red Bike is their 80th uh, Rolling mm. World premiere. And uh, it's uh, usually what happens is three or four theaters or more. Uh, we'll join up across the country to do one play. And the idea being sometimes with with time in between for the writer to do rewrites. So because I think what often happens with world premieres is that you get that one shot and then you don't get a second or third production uh, yeah. unless it becomes Hamilton or something, you know, yeah. so. There, I, I mean, there are there are so many plays that are on the uh, dustbin of history yeah. Yeah. that are really, really great plays mm-hmm. and they just kind of didn't click right with the audience and so they're gone and nobody, I, and I, there, there should be a program or maybe there is a program for people to go del- delve into that and reproduce some of those things and fix them but anyway go, go on so they are now is this red bike is it are there c- concurrent productions or they're staggered so staggered. there'll be yeah, okay. so in, I'm in rehearsals right now in Philadelphia with red bike uh, uh, and so that opens uh, June 6th with Simpatico Theater in Philadelphia and uh, they're also doing the version with three actors um, but they're also they're doing it with a live band on stage that mm-hmm. is writing music for the show and playing it live uh, during the production uh, in a space that is not a theater space, a kind of, um, I think it's going to be at some point an arts and sports complex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so we're opening a venue. Uh, in Philly, uh, at Philly Pack. And then it'll be done in Cincinnati at No Theater, uh, K-N-O-W, not N-O. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that'll be in January. So I have a time in between to kind of look at it again. They're doing the two-person version. And then uh, the Wilbury Group in Providence, Rhode Island is doing it in April of next year. Uh, and I still don't know which version they're going to do. Um, I think they're leaning to the solo version, but I'm not sure. I also have a reading of it in Chicago in, uh, in two weeks um, with a company called jackalope so it's, you're busy um it's busy but it's also what's interesting is that the nnpn rolling world premiere began because not only because oh let's find more life for, for, for new work but also because the not the the assumption sometimes is that first production is all you get and sometimes the writer's still thinking about making changes and and you know the first time out with a play you're you're kind of just testing the waters. You're going, well, this is my first audience. How are they going to respond? What are the circumstances around the production, which are quite specific uh, in terms of casting, in terms of design, so many elements involved. Um, hey, it'd be nice to get another crack at it and see what else could happen with now that you've learned something about how it works. And so I had this experience with uh, with NNPN specifically, uh, with a play of mine called WAPA, uh, which was done with three theaters around the country. And 
I did rewrites. You know, I thought that play was done. <laughs> and then I was like in the second production and I was like in Indianapolis and I was like, oh, now I know what needs to happen in this scene that I've been thinking about for a year. And so when I, I went to do the production, the third production of that play in Portland, Oregon, it was ready, you know, and it, but it took the, that enough time and we were all in conversations with each other. So I think one of the things that NMP and Fosters is that the theater companies, are not just doing isolated productions, but they actually talk to each other about what they're doing. So we just had a conference call with all the four artistic directors of all the companies that are doing Red Bike uh, to talk about design ideas, to talk about marketing ideas. You know, everybody has a different audience base. And one of the things that I'm very keen on with this play is I keep telling people, uh, the producers, I keep telling them, make it local, make it local. That's that's an interesting uh, statement. How, How do you do that? Well, you know, the you can change things to fit th- this location. Yes, I mean, the play doesn't say where we are, do you know? So I, you can make it a bike ride around Salt Lake. Correct. You can do that. You can do that if you wanted to. And, and you and you specifically allow that in the in the yeah. in the stage directions or say The play has no stage directions. It has no stage directions. It has direction. no stage directions. It must have some guide from you at the beginning or the end or somewhere. It does have. It's set, It's constructed in 50 chapters, and it's like a, an epic poem. And it has, I think, I, I will say, it does have one stage direction. Okay, it has one stage direction. <laughs> <laughs> it has one stage direction that has to do with sound and movement. And uh, and I do have like a front page where I talk about like ways of staging it and possibilities that could occur in the production process. Uh, but it's very open, uh, quite intentionally. And But the idea of making it local has to do like, I, one of the cool things that Pygmalion is doing is that the bike collective, bicycle collective in yeah. Salt Lake, mm-hmm. sure, I know um, them. they're donating, They're ask, we're asking people to donate bikes uh, and they're going to be on display in the lobby uh, during the run of the show. And then they'll be uh, refurbished by the bike collective and given to uh, people in need in Salt Lake uh, to use I for have, transportation. I have given them many bikes and and purchased many bikes from them. Yeah. It's almost silly, especially for your kids, to buy them new bikes. You go to the Bicycle Collective and you get them a refurbished bike yes. that they'll grow out of. That's right. the way. Uh, you, you know, so um, are are um, are others of your plays. Uh, more specific in stage direction, or do you you, you do some that are very very? I have some that are tightly super, wound. Yeah, there's some yeah. that are super prescriptive. I think that one of the things that happened is I wrote a play called um, some years ago called Iphigenia Crashland Falls on the neon shell that was once her heart. And I love that title. I I kept looking for it because I couldn't quite remember it. Yeah. Uh, what's it? Say it again slower. Iphigenia Crashland Falls on the neon shell that was once her heart. I love it. Okay. And it's a, you know, it's a take on the Iphigenia story, uh, kind of set in a, it's a set in the, um, in the, the, the sort of landscape for it is the femicide in Ciudad Juarez, but it's also um, part of the play is set in rave culture. Uh, and so, and it's a wild, wild piece. And it has a lot of, um, I have a very strong interest in dramaturgically in video and production design and constructing that vocabulary inside of the text. And uh, and that play, I went all out in terms of being quite prescriptive about images that I was seeing in my head that I wanted to articulate, but mm-hmm. also creating a counterpoint. So a visual track that went sometimes against what the verbal track is doing, mm-hmm. um, or sometimes complimenting it, or sometimes highlighting it, or zooming in on a close-up of a figure, et cetera, uh, as part of the the plays, uh, how the play works. And what happened with that play is that it did get done, and yay, and all that, but... Uh, um, what I found in sending it to people is that they were terrified by all the stage direction. They were kind of like, oh, this is the only way you could do it. And I was like, oh, gosh, no. I, I mean that as a way for you to dream big. And maybe you'll dream something else that could happen here. And so I started to realize that that there's a it's a funny thing with calibrating stage directions that sometimes people get scared by what yeah. you set down. Oh, yeah. And um, and so I've been I've been trying to be I mean, A, I like being the playfulness of going, I'm gonna have none or hardly any to see what happens, how people can sort of uh, walk into a text that way. Uh, and what do they find? Because my language, verbal language is very uh, in my plays is tends to be very imagistic. So you there are images there, uh, and there's a kind of physicality evoked uh, by the writing but you're you're not Samuel Beckett. No. As you know, you're not it has to be this way or no other way. No, you know why? I think it's because what I don't like is to see a play of any play actually mine or somebody else's 
where I close my eyes and go, oh, that's the only way it can be done. And then you see that production, it's like the same way in five different cities. I find that intensely boring. God, I just saw Hamilton here. Yes. Oh, right, because it's pretty. Yeah. 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 And I, now, I got to say, I expected it to be good because I've heard how good it is. Yes. It's, it's phenomenal. It yeah. really was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I was blown away by it. The lighting, the mm-hmm. the, the acting, the uh, where do they find? There, I think there are three or four touring companies of it right now. Correct. And I don't know where in God's name they find people who can sing so brilliantly, yeah. and so many of them, mm-hmm. and 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 choreography. Mm-hmm. But I did. You you know you say I got the feeling it's pretty much almost always the same way. It, it, and in a way, it has to be for that show. I think. Correct. It's so it's so dictated by the rhythm of the the the, the rap songs and the. And, uh, but I, 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 when you said that, I went. You know, Hamilton's like that. It's just going to always be like a machine, kind of. Right, but it's also because a beautiful machine. A beautiful machine, but uh, it's also because it's it's a brand. Do you know what I mean? So well, yeah, sure. So you know, I mean, just like Les Mis, or you know, yeah. and 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 I sort of ache for and contractually I'm sure you know I don't know what their contracts are like but I'm sure it says you cannot change blah 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 probably you have to do that original choreography etc or some version of it probably um but I think it's exciting when you can reinvent material um and who and why should the first version be the only way you know and and so it's I I love you know people we're theater makers and we're you know I want people's imaginations to bear upon the work mm-hmm. uh, their creativity uh, what they see that I'm not seeing um, you know and sometimes I'll be in disagreement with them you know that's okay uh, but I think that it's an exciting experiment for me and also for I think for the audience and and it also means that every production has its own unique texture and and life and, and life and beauty yeah that makes me think about uh keeps rolling around in my mind throughout this conversation the ephemeral mm-hmm. nature of theater mm-hmm. uh, and and what you do it's very it it's done once and then it's gone and done and it's gone does that ever make you want to as you mentioned david mamet earlier does that ever make you want to preserve your stuff and have it have it filmed so that there is a record that this is how this and maybe this was the best one this was the way it went i have a couple i mean i have uh two archives that archive my work and so one of them is at university of miami uh and they've actually managed to film some some of my key productions not all of them uh uh, one of them that I that was amazing, and and yeah. I was like, thank God somebody has it somewhere because <laughs> yeah. no one else will have it ever again. Um, and I'm also a uh, play of mine is being turned into a film uh, this summer, so so it will live as a film uh, forever. <laughs> well, uh, do do we want to know the name of it? And yes, it's called Fugitive Dreams. Fugitive Dreams. But okay. it was uh, the play itself was originally called Fugitive Pieces, uh, but for rights issues we changed the title. Okay, and and that are you excited about that? That's I'm thrilled because it's this is a the funny story behind that is that it's the director of the third production of that play when we were doing it in Austin, Texas, at a company called Salvage Vanguard. Uh, we were doing the show, and at the time, the play is constructed like a road movie. And, uh, and he was like, oh, this would make such an amazing film. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And then we didn't do anything. And then, you know, years, like, like a year ago, he called me up, and he was like, I want, I'm still dreaming about it. I want to do it now. And I was like, oh, awesome. So we started collaborating on the screenplay, and and it's in, it's like the gears have been moving really fast, and we're, we're shooting this summer. Cool. So yeah, got funding and all yes, of that. Yes, amazing. You know, uh, I will say that uh, Jason Ulander, who's the director, and um, two things. One is that production in Austin nailed the play. Like it was like I opened my, I walked in. That was an experience where I walked in, and I knew them and I knew their work, but I hadn't really worked with them before. And I just the play was sort of speaking to me. It was co- sort of going. Oh, there's that's where you've been all this time. Do you know what I mean? And I missed it, and I didn't realize. Did I do that? Did I do that? It was a do I do that moment, and Mm -hmm. I was, it was glorious, and I I count it as like one of the five best productions of my work. Um, So the trust that I have with Jason is immense, and um, and that it's him doing the film. I'm like 
He's also like a wheeler dealer, like in terms of his well, vibe. Well, that's, that's, that's a nice quality to it also works. have. I'm He's not, a great artist I and a wheeler the, dealer. Yeah, I, that, yeah. I, could, I can't do the wheeler dealer part. Yeah. Well, I'm not really a great artist either, but there, there you go. Uh, it's uh, uh, the play uh, that you, you're doing here, Red Bike, uh, Pygmalion Theater Company. Now, while we're recording this, it opens this evening, and then it runs through... May 5th. May 5th. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, and you can get tickets. Just go to Arts, 355-ARTS, 801-355-ARTS is the phone number. Or just look for Pygmalion Theater Red Bike. It'll pop up everywhere and you can buy tickets. Uh, which, which, oh, you're doing it, which theater are you doing it in? Do you, do you know? It's the Rose Wagner, but it's... It looks like a dance studio. It's very wide. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've done a couple of plays. I did Waiting for Godot in one of those theaters wow. there. Yeah, a friend of mine said, do you want to be in Waiting for Godot? And I went, yeah, <laughs> you bet. <laughs> of course. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, and it's, it's, they're all great spaces there, and it'll be. And then you're just here for the opening, and then you're gone? Yeah, then I run away tomorrow. So, mm. boy. <laughs> as I say, do you um, do you, you you talk about collaborating with various people that you know well? Do you are you a, like a resident playwright for some theater company? I've been a resident playwright at uh, Repertorio Español, or uh, English title of that is Spanish Repertory Theater in New York, for about since two thousand and nine, uh, which has been a really beautiful experience like to have that, that. Mm-hmm. and also because they have a they have a core company of actors, so I've been able to write plays for them, uh, which is a very sort of like in the Moliere days when you think about like oh he had a company and he wrote for them yeah. and it changes the way you make things actually um, and uh, so I've been very lucky to have that and I also there are companies that I worked with consistently so so I'm not like officially on their roster as a resident playwright but I you know we're friends and we make things together so mm. yeah. and uh, people listening to this you know I think this is inspiring to people on a certain level just from the standpoint of like oh you can if you really try, you can make a living doing something that you love and something artistic. Because a lot of people get get that driven out of them. They get it pushed out of them by their parents or their, their teachers. They say, you know, I, I really want to be an actor or a writer or a this or that. And their parents will say, well, you know... That's maybe good, fine, but you've got to, you, you know, go to school and get maybe be a teacher or something, something to fall back on. Did your parents ever say that to you? Give me, you got to do something to fall back on? Oh, my blessed parents. You know, I will say that I, I mean, they've, the patience, you know, to have a child in the arts when no one else is in the arts in the yeah. family, that's like a huge thing. And I, I think about it all the time and think, my God, the sacrifices they've made for me. Uh, but they've always been supportive. I mean, they said, does it make you happy? And I was like, yes. Are you good at it? I think so. Uh, okay, work hard. You know, and I think this is notion of just sticking to it and having faith. If you have a supportive environment in your household, it does help you. Not, I mean, not that you're not going to ever have those moments of like, oh my God, I have them every day. And what am I doing with my life? Mm-hmm. What is this? You know, but but you think, oh, I'm. People believe in me. Do you know what I mean? And just having that mm-hmm. f- gives you a little bit of confidence to move forward, and and hopefully other people will start saying that to you, and you you still have more confidence. But you also have to find it in yourself ultimately, uh, because you know. As we know in any business, but this one in particular, it's ebb and flow, ebb and flow. Sometimes, you know, it's many things are happening and sometimes crickets, you know. So so you just have to be stay with the game. And you, and I think the notion of having discipline and having persistence and being true to your vision, uh, but also letting that vision expand. You know, I think you're, you're right. And I think uh, but I think maybe also a cautionary or not a cautionary, but a, a word to those people around artistic people who try and steer them away from it because they don't think it's practical. Uh, And this just occurred to me. Remember, these people who who are artistic or think that they're artistic, if they're not, they just think they are, one of these very first days they will go, oh, I'm not really gonna, you know, I'm not really gonna be able to make this my life. Oh, I'm maybe not as good as I thought I was, and it's a tough realization to come to. But that, but they, it, it will come to them, and they'll do something else. So let them try. Absolutely. Let people try. Isn't that? I mean, I just, that just occurred to me. And yeah, I, you know, and I think if uh, you know, you also don't know. I mean, it's funny. 
uh, you'll meet somebody, like I think of sometimes of my grad school colleagues, for example, and the ones who were like the brilliant actors in school or whatever, and some of them still are the brilliant actors in you know, mm-hmm. the re- quote, the real world. Uh, but then there's also the people that were like, you know what, I actually found my passion in arts administration, or I found my passion yeah. in education, or I found it in applied theater, you know, working as a teaching artist in schools. Art and, therapy. Yeah, so, stuff, yeah. I, so I just think you, you don't, re- you know, sometimes you think, oh, this is, I also think closing yourself off to opportunities and possibilities is what shuts sometimes people down. So I think that, if you think, oh, I can only be like the actor on the TV series, then well, mm-hmm. you're going to close off many opportunities in your life, you know. So if that thing doesn't happen, yeah. Uh, and so, so I just I, I admire the folks that that found different ways to to make their work, and also people who've decided, hey, you know what, this is not for me. I actually don't have the stamina to do this kind of mm-hmm. work. Uh, it does take a lot of stamina, and so you know, I'm going to reorganize my life and re-engineer it and go elsewhere. And and that's good too. Yeah, know? I mean, I I was sure I was going to be an actor for my life, and I didn't want to be a star. Or anything like that. I just wanted to be able to be a working actor, make my living doing that, and that's what I was going to do. And then, uh, then I realized that well, I got a job in radio, and I realized well, this is a little more steady, and it employs a lot of the things I've already learned, and I can perform and entertain, and 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 may, maybe make a better living doing this, and have. And it just it's just that's just the way it happens. And I don't regret taking all those theater classes and, you know, and uh, doing all that and sweating and hate and hating to audition and feeling belittled and, you know, feeling small and and -hmm. feeling triumphant when I was appraised for what I did. You know, Mm -hmm. so I'm glad I did all of that uh, to get me to this point uh, in my life. It's called Red Bike. I like talking to to people like you, and I hope people are finding this interesting Yay. as we c- converse. I hope so too. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, let me let's where it kind of wrap up here. Um, I had a call this morning on the morning show that I do with my uh, two partners. Uh, we had a call from a, a guy who said, um, uh, "Hi, my daughter's in this play, Red Bike, and I wanted to call and tell you about that because we let people call in and just kind of promote what they're doing, you know, or." You know, or just chat with us. We have a segment where we just, you can do whatever you want. Call, you can ask us questions. If you have a an event you want to promote, promote the event, If you whatever you want to do. And he says, my daughter's in this play, Red Bike. Her name's Sydney. And I just wanted everybody to know about it, and they should go see her because she's great. And uh, and I said, well, interestingly enough, I'm going to be interviewing the the author of that play later on today. He said, what, really? That's cool. And I said, what do you know about Red Bike? And he said, well, all I know is that my daughter says, it's kind of weird. <laughs> it's kind of weird. And she tried to explain it to me, and I kind of didn't get it. But I'm sure proud of her, and I'm going to go see it, you know. Oh, heavens. Uh, so it was lovely, I thought. Um, it's a red bike, and uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Caridad Savic. Correct. And... Um, I don't have to wish you much success because you've had it, but I'll wish you very much success with this production of Red Bike and all the folks at Pygmalion Theater who do really good work all the time. Absolutely. Fran has done uh, remarkably well with that company. Uh, It's people like her who persist and are able to make Salt Lake actually a really vibrant theater community. Mm -hmm. There are many, many theater companies here in Salt Lake, probably too many for the size of the community, but they all, all do stuff and good work and it's pretty exciting um uh what do you what do you do when you leave in here oh my heavens i'm uh <laughs> i have a production in chicago of a play called de troya uh, which translates loosely as of troy or from troy uh, and it's the Chicago premiere, and so I'm I'm actually getting rehearsal notes every day from that show, and so I think that's sort of the next thing on the horizon. Plus the reading of Red Bike in Chicago with Jackalope, and then um, and then I've written a cycle of plays inspired by Red Bike, so I call it the Red Bike cycle of plays. No pun intended. Red bikes, yes, yes, pun intended. And, uh, pun very much <laughs> intended. And they're all plays that are mapping a very specific terrain around uh, disparity in the United States and uh, looking at it from the landscape of um identity uh poverty displacement transience homelessness um and uh and they all take different shapes but they all have a sense of music about them and so one of them is a blues play and the other one um is inspired by shakespeare's henry the fourth part (laughs) one uh and uh and the fuel is the second play in the red bike series cycle 
and Fuel's getting a reading in San Francisco, so I'm actually casting for that right now. Do you, do you ever settle in one place, or are you always on the road? Uh, I'm usually in New York. You're usually and, in New York? Yeah, Manhattan. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to meet you, uh, and I'd like, I'd really actually would like to talk more about the social, about what playwrights, you know, what your, their responsibility is to the social fabric, but we're kind of running out of time. But, no worries. But this, I mean, uh, the country's pretty fucked up right now, I, I think it you is. would agree, and, yeah. and, uh, do you see the light? <sighs> the light, I think that, we, you know, I keep thinking, I think a lot about abandonment. You know, I mean, I'm thinking a lot about so many of our millions of citizens being abandoned by. I was sitting on the plane the other day. It's an interesting thing when you're traveling, and the gentleman who was next to me worked, had you had worked for a tech company, and nothing against tech companies, but it was sort of interesting. He was on the phone with his friend, and he was saying, One of the reasons I left tech is that every time we talked about progress, it meant an efficiency, it meant maybe there was one person who was losing their livelihood, mm-hmm. you know, out of a job by yeah. automation. Uh, mostly, uh, and he said it hurt me. It actually hurt my, you know, hurt my mm. life. You know, mm. hurt my psyche. Um, and I was like, yeah. I'd, and and then he said, and then he was talking to him. And he said, who said that we had to put people out of work? <laughs> like, why is that a given? Like everybody sort of j- jumping onto the bandwagon with that. And 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 I was like, yeah. You know, what is it, what is going to happen to like a vast majority of of the you know, our citizens in the United States? Uh, speaking specifically about the U.S. about this uh, and how they're going to survive, and and I'm so I'm thinking a lot about that. Is there light? I mean, I'm hoping that we take care of each other, and how do we start relearning uh, kinship and belonging? Right, we've been, you know, we've had we've had plenty of time. I mean, you and you see why there's a despair. You know, coal miners out of work, <laughs> steel workers have been out of work for forty years. You know, thirty right. years, and and but nobody seems to step up and say, well, what can we? Do a, I mean, Donald Trump may, makes hollow promises to those people. Correct. But you're never going to bring back the coal industry. You're never going to bring back steel mm-hmm. to any degree. Mm-hmm. You know. So why hasn't anybody ever stepped up and, and said, well, w- what can we do with these people to make them, to have, give them some purpose in life? Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. I know. I know. I know. But, you know, I think the light is how, how we can all, like, find, find it in ourselves to care for each other. And I think it's, it's going to depend on all of us social responsibility thank you very much thank you uh red bike opens tonight goes through the 5th of may uh tickets are available through uh 801-355 arts or just look up pygmalion theater company uh caridad ceviche thanks i'm bill allred um dylan allred is not here to produce the show i had to do it myself thanks a lot dylan You, you can never go on vacation Uh, And that's it uh, for the Let's Go Eat show. Remember, if you're pouring drinks, always make mine a double. Broadway Media Podcast Network.